This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. During the pandemic, families and students began looking for new alternatives. Private school and charter school enrollments edged upwards. Homeschooling soared. New forms of schooling, micro schools, hybrid homeschooling, career academies, many other forms of education suddenly appeared. But perhaps the single biggest change that occurred during the pandemic was the rapid growth of the virtual charter school. When public schools turned to online instruction, many families, many students decided they might as well go to a virtual school, one that was organized for that very purpose. But are these virtual charter schools up to the mark? There are strong opinions on both sides of this question. Some researchers claim their data show that students who study at virtual schools don't learn as much. On the other side, practitioners and vendors say the research is simplistic and doesn't recognize the peculiar circumstances under which virtual schooling takes place. At the International School Choice Research Conference just held in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Daniel Hamlin, a professor of education at the University of Oklahoma, presents new evidence on virtual schooling in the state of Oklahoma. His take is notable for its balanced, thoughtful approach that looks at both sides of this question. So I'm pleased to have Daniel with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here with you. Well, Daniel, our listeners are eager to learn what you found, but let's begin with how you assembled your data and why you think it adds to the discussion on virtual schooling. What information do you have on student performance uh, at uh, virtual schools? Yeah, so I'm looking specifically at data from the state of Oklahoma, and I have a data set from 2016 all the way up to 2019, right before the pandemic. So that includes a pretty large number of full-time virtual charter school uh, students in that data set. And I'm able to look longitudinally. I have um, in the data set, pretty standard sociodemographic background variables on students' uh, racial background, uh, free and reduced price lunch status, and so on. And I also look at the reading and math achievement scores of all students in that data set. Well, who are you comparing them to? Are you comparing them to all other students in the state of Oklahoma, or do you have some more focused comparison? Well, I do both. So I compare virtual school students, full-time virtual school students to their peers in district-run public schools and also other peers in brick-and-mortar charter schools. But then I also do different cuts of the data where I look at subsamples of rural students, virtual school, virtual school students who reside in rural areas and compare them to their rural peers. I also look at high achieving students, so students who are achieving at the 75th percentile and higher before going into a virtual school, and then I compare them to their peers. So I, I do some different cuts of the data. Mackie Raymond and, and the Credo people, they have all, they've come up with this virtual twin idea where uh, you get somebody who looks exactly like the student uh, at a virtual school who's attending a brick and mortar school based on their demographics and their prior test scores. Are you able to do anything like she does? Yeah, I do. I do some 
robustness checks doing some of the typical matching techniques, not quite like the one that's done by Credo, but uh, a matching technique nevertheless. But I also focus my analyses on a little bit of a different technique, although I think the results that I find are pretty similar to what Credo finds. So what I do is I, I, do, I perform a, a fixed effects analysis. Essentially what I'm doing is looking at the same student over time and looking at how that same student does when that, when that student is in a virtual school versus when that same student is attending a, a, dist, a brick and mortar district run public school. I also, along with that, look at students who have more stable school experiences. So the, the students, for example, who don't switch between years and stay in a virtual school over the, the duration of, of my analysis. So I, I look at different types of schooling experiences within the virtual sector. But I think what's interesting, even though we're relying on different techniques, the results are pretty, pretty comparable when you compare my findings with credos, both showing fairly strong negative associations between attendance in a, in a virtual charter school and academic achievement. Well, how many students do you have in your uh, virtual schools that you're studying in Oklahoma? Are there quite a number of them? This is before the pandemic. I know everything expands after the pandemic, uh, but before the pandemic, were there a lot of students in virtual schools in Oklahoma? Yeah, so in, in my analysis, um, in 2017, there were about over 13,000 students in virtual charter schools. By 2019, which is the final year of my analysis, that number was up to 18,000. Um, so a fair number of virtual charter school students uh, um, in the state of Oklahoma. And I, I would also note that by 2021, uh, there were about 42,000 students in the virtual charter school sector, although many of those students um, it appears have since returned to their to their brick and mortar schools. Still, though, that's a a pretty large leap during the pandemic. Well, how many uh, how many students are there altogether in the public schools of the state of Oklahoma? So we get an idea of what the percentage is. What's the, what's the percentage attending virtual schools? Yeah, it's a pretty small percent relative to the overall student population. So in my in my data set, for example. Um, I where I have student I'm looking at uh, student test scores. I have about eleven thousand, uh, more nearly twelve thousand test scores for virtual charter school students, and then well over eight hundred thousand test scores for students in brick and mortar public schools. So it's got to be around one percent or two percent, something in in that range there, approximately. Okay, so as, let's not get. Uh, let's not let our listeners think that we're looking at half the students in the United States, right? We're we're looking at still what's a small percentage, but which is nonetheless a growing percentage of the population. Now, are they a, are they mainly in secondary school? Are they high school students, or are they mainly elementary school students? Uh, well, they are uh, spread around. I think as a as a proportion. There are more virtual charters. For, so, for example, if you can compare the proportions of district-run public school students at each grade level to the proportions uh, in a virtual charter school, then you have much higher proportions of virtual charter school students at the high school level, let's say, than you would at the district-run public in a, in a traditional district-run public school. So, the proportions much higher at the high school level, although 
you still have a, a fair number of virtual school kids uh, at all grades. So why do students choose to go to school online? Why don't they go to their neighborhood school or the one closest to them? What are, do you have any information on why students are choosing this option? Yeah, well, I think that's the question that's on everyone's minds. So there, of course, have been surveys of parents asking them why they opt into a virtual school, and they give pretty tip, typical responses, academic, safety, mental health, physical health. I mean, there's a whole range of reasons that I, parents identify for going into virtual schools. Um, but I'm not sure if those surveys are actually really going to the heart of it. And when I was at the, the you mentioned the conference and a, a policy, um, a policymaker uh, in a, um, at a at a local district came up to me after the event and said, you know, no one actually chooses to no one wakes up one day and says, I really want my child to go to a virtual school. And I think the point that that person was making is that there's some kind of strong negative selection that takes place with respect to virtual school. Something isn't going right in the life of the student, and that's what leads the parents to, to opt for a virtual school. And this person made the point that it's often a last resort for parents, at least in the context that he was familiar with. So um, again, I, I, I think your, your question is, well, why are they doing this? Well, I, it's, it's, I think it's kind of a complicated answer, and I don't think we have a really a full understanding of all the reasons why people select into a, a full-time virtual school yet, at least before and after the pandemic. During the pandemic, we've got a better answer. But, you know, a lot of people will talk about those celebrated instances when a great tennis star was uh, was homeschooled or a, a, a famous uh, alpine skier or uh, you know, a boxer or, you know, somebody who uh, was devoting their life to a particular activity and really couldn't attend school in the normal way and devote their life to this other this other experience. So, but I suppose that's a very small percentage of the total. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that could be. I mean, it may be the case that uh, that a lot of the negative associations that we're viewing for academic achievement um, just have to do with the fact or the, the potential uh, circumstance that virtual school students are playing a different game. They have different objectives. And so I, I think that's very possible. I do think uh, physical health, safety concerns, behavioral concerns are also a big part of it. Um, so families uh, who have a child who has maybe a physical health problem uh, may opt for virtual school when that physical health problem becomes magnified or is an ongoing issue so that they can better care for the physical health of the student. And so maybe academics are less of a concern when, when physical health is an issue for a child. Yeah, well, years ago, I had a close member of my family uh, become sick and the doctors foolishly said uh, that uh, she would have to stay in bed for a year in order to recover. I mean, it couldn't have been a worse uh, bit of medical advice, but that's the way it was back in those days. And of course, it would have been wonderful if uh, if virtual schooling would have been available because that certainly would have been better than nothing. So do we have many examples? I mean, do you run across this uh, examples of people who just physically can't go to school and this is this is the only alternative? 
Well, certainly I've come across quite a few anecdotal examples. I can't quantify for you how common it is, but I think every, um, quite a few people who are doing this kind of research are all aware of many types of anecdotal examples of the kind you're talking about. So you're sort of saying there's good reason to think that probably people go to a virtual school out of desperation more than because they think this is the better way to learn. So therefore, why should we think that there would be equivalent performance on these tests if they're at a virtual school? Maybe just the whole approach that you and others have been taking just doesn't get at what it's all about. I think that's quite possible, um, but again, we, I, I'm not sure that we know. Just to kind of consider the other side of this debate for a second, it, it may also be that kids just don't learn as well in a full-time virtual environment as they do when they're in person. And certainly the pandemic kind of shine, really shone a light on that issue because a lot of families felt like their own children weren't learning as much when they were full-time remote. And a lot of families wanted to be back to in-person learning. Um, so I, I, I'm not, I, I think right now we don't have a, a, a really great answer on that because I do think the other side of this again is that if you're gonna be a full-time virtual learner, you're, you're gonna have to be a student who is able to organize um, his or her learning independently every day and also probably have, depending on your age, a pretty considerable amount of parental monitoring as well. So I think a lot of things would need to happen and happen well for the virtual environment to, to work um, in the ways that some have hoped it would. So one of the concerns that I have is that a lot of this um, instruction that is online is sort of taped and it's made available, but you don't have a live person at the other end. You don't have a teacher that you can ask a question of. You don't have fellow students in the classroom that you can see. It's not sort of a live experience. I'd say it's a dead experience. You know, you're, you're sitting there watching something where they actually the people could be dead and you're still seeing them on the screen because it's from some years past. So, so is probably, is part of the problem that just, the the way in which this kind of instruction is being conveyed that it's not live well i think this is where the next line of research really needs to go to try to understand do different types of full-time virtual formats produce different outcomes certainly what i'm hearing from a lot of full-time virtual school leaders is that having much more synchronous content is producing different results. We need to put that to the test empirically, but I think there might be something to that, um, that having a good mix of maybe some asynchronous, but also synchronous content may actually lead to, to better outcomes. Again, I think the pandemic also uh, suggests, some of the experiences with learning remotely during the pandemic suggests um, that, that synchronous learning was much more beneficial than than asynchronous. I, I think I, re, I remember back maybe a decade ago when people were talking about full-time virtual schools and the argument was we can get the best teacher and we can put that great teacher in a room, record everything that they have to say, and then get that content out to students. 
and that's great, but there is another part of learning that has some interactive component to it. And so I think that's kind of what you're identifying with your question about having synchronous con content. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's really important research. It would be very important to learn whether or not you can change that dynamic if you actually, of course, then a lot of the reasons for virtual schooling that some people offer just don't become relevant because supposedly virtual education is supposed to be less expensive. It'll be something you can do worldwide to places where people can't get it and it's not going to be very costly. But if you're going to do everything live and synchronous, um, that's a that's a totally different cost uh, structure because you've got to have a teacher spending real time on time with a limited number of students in the classroom. You can't have classrooms of 1800. You've got to have classrooms of 10 or 12 or 15. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's that really goes to, to the heart of the issue. Although maybe it's the case that if some of it's asynchronous and some of it's synchronous, maybe it isn't quite the same amount of synchronous time as it would be uh, in-person instruction in a traditional brick and mortar school. So one of the more interesting analyses that you of all of you, the fact that you look at this in so many different ways is very powerful. But but one of the ways you looked at it was the, the fixed effects analysis, or you look at the same child in school, in a brick and mortar school, one year and the next year they're in a virtual school and then they're back again or something, you know, comparable to that pattern. So, and you showed that they learn a lot more when they actually go to school. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So when they're in the virtual school, uh, students in the full sample, uh, looking at all virtual school students, in reading and math, the negative association that I observe amounts to about two-thirds to three-quarters of a year of learning. So it's pretty pretty substantial, although it also matches up with what uh, quite a few other studies have shown. Um, I also look specifically at kids in rural areas. And the reason why I do that is because uh, virtual schools have been promoted as a way of bringing school choice specifically to rural areas where, because of economies of scale, human resource constraints, long commutes, that's very, very hard to uh, create school options for students in rural areas. Of course, virtual schools don't have that issue. So I look at a rural subsample and same, pretty much the same findings, same negative associations, about two-thirds to three-quarters of a year of learning. Now, actually, uh, you could argue that uh, it, the year that a student goes to virtual school was the year they were sick or the year that they had a crisis in the family or the year that they were being bullied that, you know, and or, so it's not fair to compare in school with virtual school. That's you're, you're just studying. They seem like it's the same person, but they're not the same person. So. What do you think of that reaction to your findings? I think it's a great critique of the fixed effects analysis. So, and, and it's one of the reasons why I do an additional analysis where I look at a set of virtual school students who stay in the same virtual school for the three-year period of analysis. So they have a, a stable experience within a virtual school. And there I also find pretty much the same negative associations, two-thirds to three-quarters of a year of learning. Um, I also do some additional analyses where 
I account for within your switching as well. Again, here too, the results are consistent with the other models. So all of this is very compelling, uh, uh, but I will say that there is one study out there, and it's only one study, and maybe we shouldn't put it that much weight on it, but I think Matt Chingos did a study of the Florida Virtual School, which is one of the best virtual schools out there, most people tell me. And um, he looked at the same student in the same year would take one course online, an AP course, and then another AP course in the classroom. So it's not a case of he's one year at virtual school. He's at, he's just taking one virtual course, and otherwise he's going to his regular class. And and he reports back that on the AP test, which is an external exam, everybody's being tested the same way and so forth. So they do about the same, whether they go virtual or not. So how do you react to that? So, and it's my understanding that in that study, he's looking at students who are taking a, a class, but they're not necessarily in a fully virtual school all the time. Is that correct, Paul? That's right. Otherwise, they're going to their regular school. Florida is one of those unusual states that says, if you want to take a course online, you can take a course online. You can get credit for it. Uh, not many places allow that, but in Florida, they allow that. And so, therefore, it was possible for a regular kid who maybe uh, he wanted to play basketball when the math course was being taught, and so he took the math course online and 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 could play with the team, something like something like that. Or maybe he didn't like the class, his instructor in math, and so he decided to take it online. Yeah, yeah. So you have no excuse to do well in math now. Yeah, I, Paul, I, I'm glad you you mentioned that study because my understanding is it does does uh, show better results than what we see for the for full time virtual schools, and I'm. I'm aware of quite a few other studies that show much more positive results for uh, of students who take maybe a single course virtually. So for example, you're living in a rural area and you're a student who wants calculus, but your rural school doesn't really have calculus. So then uh, doing a virtual calculus class makes a lot of sense. And studies of those types of situations seem to be much more positive. So that actually is sort of interesting. So as long as you're having a regular educational experience and adding on a virtual experience, maybe working, but when it's used as a total substitute, maybe is where you get into the kinds of issues that uh, are of concern. I think that's a possibility. There was one thing that came up at the session. I heard you present your paper at the conference, and I was very impressed with your paper and with the discussion. But there was one comment that I thought was worth talking about, and that was one woman said, well, of course they do worse on these tests because they're hauled in on a Saturday afternoon to take this exam. They got to travel maybe 50 miles to get to the testing site. Whereas the other kids it, that you're comparing them with are taking this as part of their class from their own teacher. And it's just a 10 minute exercise or an hour exercise in the course of the day. And so how maybe this unfair comparison in Oklahoma. Maybe, maybe that's possible. Uh, it could be that having to do that creates a certain level of stress that leads to the virtual school student underperforming relative to their peers who are accustomed to being in a brick and mortar. Um, I don't know. I, I've also administered tests in recent years and in uh, 
district-run schools. And I can tell you, those are not exactly great test-taking environments sometimes either. So I'm not really sure about that critique. I think it need to be, you need to really put it to the test empirically. So it is worth considering, but I, I'm just not sure. Well, thank you, uh, Daniel. This has been a, a fantastic discussion. I hear that your bottom line is even when you try to take into account all the concerns that people have voiced about this, these kinds of comparisons, one has to be concerned about full-time virtual learning as it's being designed today. As is being designed today. I think that's a pretty accurate summation, Paul. So, well, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. I've been speaking with Daniel Hamlin, a professor of education at the University of Oklahoma, who has just completed a study of virtual schooling in the state of Oklahoma and has found results are, are disappointing for those who are advocates of the virtual schooling option. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.